Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on, help me with the full title here, Dan, The Twilight Saga, colon, New Moon. That's correct. Part two in the uh, the Twilight Saga, based on the best-selling vampire novels by Stephanie Meyer. And joining me um, remotely, which is why we may sound a little bit different, a little bit worse than usual, but we're working on this exciting new tape-from-home technology that will enable us to do many more spoilers. So joining me from his home is in Washington, D.C. is Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Good. And uh, as regular listeners know, Dan Coyce is our uh, favorite go-to spoiler partner. He's a film critic for the Washington Post, for the website True Slant, and also a contributor to Vulture, which is the New York Magazine culture blog. So, uh, your job description having taken up three quarters of our time, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) And the title having taken up the other quarter. Right, exactly. We'll have to say goodbye now. Thanks for joining me. Uh, so I don't actually know what your reaction to Twilight New Moon was because I just saw it last night, ha- have not heard from you since seeing it. So um, let's roll just with, uh, did you like it? Do you recommend it? Um, I, my reaction to it is sort of inseparable from the reaction of the hundreds of screaming women surrounding me. <laughs> I mean, which is to say that uh, seeing this movie was a totally enjoyable movie-going experience, even though a lot of the enjoyment didn't have so much to do with the movie and had a lot to do with the sort of carnival atmosphere surrounding it. Yeah, uh, the audience is a big part of the enjoyment of this movie, and I saw it at a screening that was largely pressed, so it wasn't as squealy, but I still think that there's a lot of um, erotic energies between the audience and the screen in this movie, and that makes it really fun to see. It, it does. I mean, that's actually um, ex-Slate critic, now New York critic, David Edelstein, uh, posted his review this afternoon, um, and one of the things that he says, which I really distinctly agree with, is that the time to see this movie is not on home video. The time to see this movie is in the next week, if you can, and preferably this weekend. And honestly, I would say preferably, you know, at a midnight show, because a great deal of the fun and spirit of this experience comes from joining in, as you say, sort of like the the so as much erotic energy as it would take to fuel New York. Or Fork, Forks, Washington could right, easily right. run on so much energy. Could absolutely. That's, I can't wait to read what David said on it. That's funny. The studio is going to love that he said, you must see Twilight this weekend right. at the midnight screening. Right. I think he couched it in such a way so that they can't pull like tease a quote out of it. Like, the movie's not that great, but if you're going to see it... Right. Um, well, actually, I did think it was pretty great. I feel like I'm going to be one of its its few defenders, but I don't know how much of a leg I have to stand on outside of just my, my sheer enjoyment. Let's start off with a quick story summary, although we can sort of assume, well, first of all, everyone should assume that we're going to spoil the movie as given away in the name Slate Spoiler Special. So don't listen to this if you don't want anything spoiled. But we can also, I think, safely assume that most of the intended audience for this movie has either read the books or at least seen the first Twilight movie, right? Right, and most likely has had, uh, I mean at long involved conversations with friends on the internet about what the movie would be like um conversations that the movie does not skimp on rewarding with you know introductory shots of edward walking in slow motion with squealing guitar behind him i mean the intros in this movie sort of reminded me of when you go to a broadway play with bernadette peters and they make sure that like Bernadette steps out on stage and there's a 10 second pause in the action. So the audience kind of plot her <laughs> like they have this in that movie, except for it's Robert Pattinson and it's a 10 second pause so that the audience can scream at the tops of their lungs. Yeah, they know they definitely know how to do their reveal. But so right. just in case people are, are saying, huh, Edward, Robert Pattinson, <laughs> wow, let's, let's catch them up. Um, so, uh, it's, it takes place in Forks, Washington. It's the second in a, in a series, as you said. And, and at the beginning of the book, Bella, who is a um, high school senior, um, 
is deep into her relationship with Edward, who is a 109-year-old vampire um, who looks 17. Um, although, I mean, let's be fair, he looks 23, but he and he's meant to look 17. He's, he's movie 17. He's movie 17, sure. He passes for movie 17. Um, and uh, they fell in love in the last movie, Twilight, and, um, and now are sort of deep into their relationship, but the relationship hits a snag when at Bella's 18th birthday party at the home of Edward and his vampire quote-unquote relatives, um, fellow vampires who have sworn not to eat humans, although they find it very difficult not to do so, um, Bella slices her finger. She gets a paper cut on a piece of wrapping paper, and the blood causes a near riot in the house as some vampires try to eat her, and some vi- vampires have to retire queasily to other rooms. And, and <laughs> I just have to burst in and say, didn't you think that was an intentionally funny moment? I mean, this is one actually one of my pieces of ammunition against the haters who are going to say this movie is so solemn and self-important. I think the fact that a paper cut sparks the first big action scene of the movie is actually kind of a joke on our expectations of the vampire movie, and I really liked it. Yeah, and, and they have like the portentous shot of a single drop of blood hitting the white carpet. Um, and uh, so with that uh, experience fresh in his mind, Edward, um, Bella's boyfriend, realizes uh, that he just may not be right for her, that living with him, being with him forever might always leave her in danger, and um, and he basically he dumps her. Um, and all the Cullens, all of Edward's family, take off to points unknown, and this is really the first ten minutes of the movie, and those who are not that familiar with the story may be pretty shocked that, in fact, other than a couple of hallucinations... Edward, the the series marquee star, does not appear in this movie for like pretty much another hour and forty five minutes. Yeah, he really just sort of lurks around the edges of this movie, which frankly is sort of the way I want Robert Pattinson. I right. want him as as quiet and around the edges as possible because when he's talking, things only go downhill. Right, but I'm exactly. sure I'm sure a lot of fangirls will be disappointed at his relative absence from the movie. Right. Well, um, yes, I agree with you that when he's talking, it takes away from uh, his strong points. Let's just say. Um, but uh, but so the movie then turns to the third in uh, Twilight in the Twilight series' uh, love triangle, who is Jacob Black, who is a um, Native American who lives on a res near Forks, um, and who Bella briefly met and befriended in the previous movie. And, and in this movie, uh, she and Jacob become very close. He helps her and becomes the only sort of human link to the world for her after she's deep in self-pity and grief at being dumped by her vampire boyfriend and um there's this whole subplot about how she becomes an adrenaline junkie because when she does dangerous things she imagines edward telling her to stop like some kind of supernatural scold um but uh jacob and and bella become tight and become friends and jacob hopes for more and bella doesn't want to give him more because she knows she'll never love anyone the way she loved edward and um anyways a, a wrench is thrown in the works when it turns out that jacob's a werewolf um, and there's a nice moment in the movie, um, which is, comes straight out of the book, actually, in which Bella says in voiceover, like, so is, is everything true? Like, are all the monsters we read about true? So there are vampires and werewolves? Um, and, uh, you know... In the book, is there any answer to that? Does somebody come out and say, oh, yeah, Frankenstein lives right around the corner? <laughs> no. Sadly, sadly, that question is not answered. Uh, but I have to assume that Stephanie Meyer does have, like, some kind of quasi-sequel... Uh, like up her sleeve with the swamp thing and zombies i mean she's got so many movie archetypes to draw on right right um and uh and then the 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 crux of the story then becomes um bella and jacob sort of building 
attachment, which could or could not be romantic, and it's teased at on a number of occasions that Bella may have romantic feelings for him, even as she claims not to. And um, and then uh, a, a last-minute effort to rescue Edward, who, through a series of hilarious contrivances, uh, becomes convinced Romeo and Juliet style that Bella has died. Right, because um, apparently in this universe, there's even though we constantly see people using the internet and cell phones, there's no way to communicate to Edward, who's apparently in Rio. Don't they show him with like a shot of the Christ the Redeemer statue behind him at one right, moment? Right. He somehow can't seem to get the message that she's not actually dead, and those contrivances are not even particularly... They're not worked on even very hard. Right. And so then he decides that he has to go to... It's not Rome. It's somewhere in Italy, right? Volterra. I don't know Volterra, you're right. A, a, a hill town in Italy where... A guy who I like to think of as kind of like the vampire pope <laughs> resides. He's played by Michael Sheen with, I think, a great kind of camp joy. I love Michael Sheen's performance as this this scary head vampire guy who seems to be in charge of some cabal of super powerful vampires who are the only people who can kill other vampires. Right. And, uh, and essentially, Edward wants to commit suicide by showing himself to the crowd of humans, and then he will have broken the ultimate vampire prime directive and have to be choked to death by Michael Sheen. Right. Um, and that, I mean, we can dwell sort of all we want on the various hilarious plot holes in this. One of them being that um, we are told that the Volturi, who are the characters played by Michael Sheen and his cohorts, are the only people who can kill a vampire shortly before we see a bunch of werewolves kill a vampire. Um, we, right, and didn't Edward kill another vampire in the yes, previous movie? Also correct. Um, we're also told that uh, Edward can read minds, um, but neither the internet nor mind reading can get the message across to him that Bella is in fact alive, despite everything he'd been previously sort of told. Um, But whatever. Uh, The point of this movie is not sort of teasing apart the plot holes. The point of it is sort of enjoying the wash of of teenage emotion as it it storms over you. Um, And I agree with you that in that respect, the movie totally delivers. I mean... I think it's it's virtually the Morrissey album of movies. I mean, it, I think it so effectively gets at that kind of teen longing and pining that even as I was rolling my eyes at the movie, I was really drawn in by by um by Bella's basic dilemma. You know, even the scene where there was a very effective shot, and I usually hate three hundred and sixty degree shots. I think it's one of the most overused camera movements in movies. But I love that three hundred and sixty degree shot when she's sitting in her chair, staring out the window, pining after Edward. It's right after he leaves her, and. As this slow camera circles around her, the names of the months appear, and she's the exact same kid in the same chair wearing the same clothes, and it says October, November, December. It just so gets at that feeling of being a depressed, housebound, grounded teenager. Right. Uh, and that actually um, happily comes straight from the book, as in the book, right after Edward dumps her, um, we get chapter headings with nothing following them that just read October, and then you turn the page and it says November, and then you turn the page and it says December, and ah, then you turn the page and then and then the next thing happens. That's interesting because it's the trickiest shot in the movie, and it sounds like it comes from a, a trick in the book, so it's an attempt to recreate that, that yep. trick. Um, but let's, uh, one of the things that I did really enjoy about this movie, and one of the things I do think sort of pushes it into uh, the realm of a... Um, an extremely pleasurable movie, even for people who maybe are not twihards, as they say, uh, are all the, <laughs> are all those scenes in Italy with Michael Sheen and Dakota Fanning 
Um, yeah, we forgot to mention that yeah. Dakota Fanning, unrecognizable as in her first, I would say, adult role. I mean, I wouldn't even call that a, a child, right? She's a vampire woman who resides with the Pope, Michael right. Sheen. Age- an ageless vampire woman with horrifying red eyes. Um, and so each of these vampires has a certain skill. Michael Sheen's is that if he touches you, he can read every thought that you've ever had. Um, hers is that she can basically cause pain. She can torture someone um, just remotely. By, remotely, just by looking at them. Um, she can basically she can cast the Cruciatus Curse from Harry Potter without having to say anything. Um, she says pain. I think she, she says the word. She pain. does say pain one time, but then another time she doesn't bother. Um, but uh, one of the things that is revealed in this movie that will um, have a great deal to do um, with the rest of the series and with Bella's experience through the rest of the series um, is this notion that Bella uh, herself has some kind of power. We learn in the first movie that Edward cannot read Bella. He can read minds of those around him, but he cannot read Bella. She's unreadable to him. And, and we learn that Bella is, in fact, immune to the powers of other vampires as well. Um, she can't uh she can't be read by uh Michael Sheen and she can't be caused pain by Dakota Fanning. Um and I like That detail is so perfect for the allegory of of teen love that this this whole series is, I think, because Bella needs some kind of power, right? I mean, she right. would be a completely passive victim and object if she was just this powerless mortal with all these super hot, cool, excellent super-powered vampires around her. Right. So the fact that she's given this immunity gives her almost like a playing card. Right, although it's one that um it's one that she doesn't really utilize yet in the series, and, and that is, I think, one of the great problems that people have with the series, and certainly one that I frequently have with the series, is that she is such like a passive heroine and one who spends so much of her time just loudly insisting that she's, she's worthless and no one could ever love her. Um, I want, while I really all around get- her, people, you know, boys fight over her. I really want to get back to that, because my question as to whether this is a completely anti-feminist and therefore despicable series, or whether in a weird, subversive subversive way it is somewhat feminist, or at least privileging of female experience, is something I want to talk about and cover. But let's take a break first to talk about our sponsor for a second. Sure. So, you can help me out with this. There's actually some uh, new information from Audible.com, but as regular podcast listeners know, um, Slate has a special relationship with Audible.com, the provider of audiobooks, the leading provider of audiobooks online. If you sign up through our website, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you can get a special deal where you get a free book as you sign up with your membership, your two-week trial membership. And even if you choose not to keep that membership, you can keep the book. But as a sort of special Thanksgiving deal for podcast listeners, um, Audible is adding on a true freebie this time. They have a whole bunch of, um, of just free audiobooks that you can get without signing up for the service online, just so you can see whether you're an audiobook kind of kind of gal or guy. Um, so the address you go to to do that is www.audiblepodcast.com slash Thanksgiving. And that deal is only good through, I believe, the day after Thanksgiving, the 26th. So go there and give it a try. And our uh, recommendation, actually, for a, for a book related to this spoiler is, you want to take it away, Dan? Sure. Um, we went back into the um, great history of trashy vampire novels um, and picked Interview with a Vampire, Anne Rice's classic, later turned into a movie with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Um, but a curiously enjoyable, though completely terrible movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in many ways, much like this, although potentially significantly more terrible than this movie, I must say. It was um, also Kirsten Dunst's premiere, right? Wasn't that her debut, her it first was. movie? It was, her very first movie. Um, what I really like about this um, Audible uh, experience is that it's narrated by the eternally crepuscular F. Murray Abraham. 
um, who uh, gives a pretty fantastic performance reading Anne Rice's florid words. I should remember this, but has F. Murray Abraham ever played a vampire? Uh, I mean, other than in Angels in America? <laughs> yeah, right, or or other than I was just thinking of his other very vampiric role, which is uh, Salieri in right. Mozart. Right, I mean, those are both, both Roy Cohn and Salieri are basically vampires walking the earth, only without the immortality. He is eternally crepuscular. He's he's perfect for that for that voice role. Okay, so back to our to our movie. The last question we were talking about was whether this movie is a nightmare for feminists or sort of it, nobody's going to argue it's a dream come true for <laughs> feminists. But but is it in a way a dream realized for women? I mean, it definitely does take place in a very female dream space, which I think is why this movie is going to be so harshed on. You know, I mean, I sort of feel like men get to have their crass movie fantasies and just proudly enjoy them. Right. But when women do, they're always so demeaned and and something something about this movie just I think is really speaks to a lot of women and it's hard to completely dismiss it because of that well it certainly it certainly does speak to women i mean of all ages and and i mean i talk about sort of the the overheated teenage lust surrounding me at the screening but there were plenty of moms and 20 somethings and 30 somethings who were also screaming just as loud at the screen and there's an entire culture out there of um twilight loving moms and twilight loving uh I, you know, Twilight-loving grown-ups who ta- who find that this taps into some kind of very archetypal experience of teenagerhood that is still very fresh in their minds. This idea of a hopeless love um, and feeling powerless, but having some kind of secret power deep within you that hopefully one day you will be able to tap. I don't, you may not know the answer to this, but is there a significant gay following for Twilight? Um, I don't know the answer to this, but I know that there is a significant gay following for Robert Pattinson's chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about Taylor Lautner, who plays uh, Jacob the Wolf Boy? Uh, there, he certainly will be building a gay following once this movie comes out. The movie goes to great, great lengths, and again, I think it's kind of intentionally funny about the ridiculous buffness of Taylor Lautner. And there was, I think, the biggest laugh moment in the movie was just when he took his shirt off. There was yes. just so something so funny about the triumphant way that Taylor Lautner took his shirt off. Like, oh yeah, we'll top this. <laughs> well, and I really like the movie as sort of a, a, a litmus test for the appeal of like the two archetypes of guys that you can be interested in. Do you want sort of the the thin, sallow, pale, brainy poet, the guy who literally quotes Shakespeare from memory in the middle of this movie? Or do you want the the buff, action-oriented... Um, motorcycle-fixing. Motorcycle-fixing, bad movie-loving dude who's really sensitive at heart. Uh, I mean, which one do you want? And it's funny in that I, I am much more the former... But watching this movie turned me uh, into a, a, I mean, it put me firmly on the side of Team Jacob. Yeah, I have to say, I came out of this movie Team Jacob, too, but that may just be because Robert Pattinson, to me, is such an uncompelling performer. He looks the part beautifully. I can't really imagine anyone else being cast just because he looks so right. Right. But uh, but I just can't imagine preferring him over, you know, someone who seems like an actual chunk of living flesh. Right. Quite a handsome chunk of living flesh, like Taylor Lautner. Although, I I think that Jacob should never have cut his hair. He looked really great with the long, flowing locks. Yeah, someone has already complained to me that... uh, was it you that that once he cuts his hair, he just looks unfortunately like a less handsome Matt Damon? 
Yeah, that was me. He becomes like the ethnic. He's he's like the Native American Matt Damon all of a sudden, right. and that just that just is not sexy. But but I just want to close on the observation that there's something really great about a movie in which the wholesome relationship choice for the woman is the werewolf and not the vampire, right? I mean, it's to me sort of clearly set out that that to be on Team Jacob is to be on the team of Bella's emotional well-being because he doesn't torment her in the way that her love for Edward does, right? So he's sort of like the nice guy, the good guy, the wholesome guy. He just occasionally turns into a ravenous lupine beast that wants to tear her flesh from her bones. Right. But he won't make it, he won't hurt her feelings. He promises he'll never hurt her feelings. And in this movie, it's almost like that's the biggest fear, right? I mean, Bella actually wants to be turned into a vampire, and it doesn't even seem like she'd mind becoming food for the vampires. Right. But what she but what she can't bear is to live in this this eternal teenage hell that 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 her love for Edward keeps her in. Well, I guess maybe that's the the source of the connection for so many people. I mean, not just women, but people is how many of us haven't wanted to just get out of this teenage hell. And honestly, you could kill us if that's what it took man if if you killed us with love we'd be happy right well what do you have any any observations or expectations for eclipse which is coming out pretty pretty quickly now it's going to be out i think in the middle of next year um i have none because i have not read the book i'm reading each book shortly before i see each movie i've gotten briefed on the plot by my twilight loving wife um, but I don't have any real sense. I know that there are some more battle scenes, which would be swell because these movies, despite adding action that isn't even in the book, still have a real dearth of action and a real wealth of scenes of people staring at one another. Um, but uh, aside from that, I don't have any real sense of what it's going to be like, I, other than that it's going to make 70 gazillion dollars. Right. Well, are you a defender of the books? Not because I found the, I found the book first book pretty much unreadable, although I did manage to plow through for the sake of the movie, but I, I'm not going to take on the rest of this series. The prose is just too bad. Um, I will say that New Moon is a better book than Twilight, but they are both worse books than almost every other book. And it's a very strange um, circumstance in which I think the movies kind of supersede the book, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the the movies sort of deliver the pleasures of the book much more efficiently and without Stephanie Meyer's stylistic tics and sort of amateurish writing. I mean, there's a certain ability that Hollywood has to shorthand emotion and to shorthand passion that Stephanie Meyer spends hundreds and hundreds of pages trying to establish. And, and for many readers, establishing in a very real way, but to sort of casual readers who are not obsessive fans of the novels, the movies are a much more satisfying experience than reading the books. Yeah, a quicker, a quicker hit and more efficient delivery system. Yeah. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me for this late spoiler special podcast on tw- the Twilight Saga New Moon. Thanks, Dana. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.